Welcome to the AWP podcast series. This event was recorded at the 2017 AWP conference in Washington, D.C. The recording features Kate Marvin, Jennifer Knox, Aaron Ballou, Brenda Shognessy, and by V. Francis. You will now hear Kate Marvin provide introductions. Hi, everyone, and welcome. My name is Kate Marvin, and um, this is, panel is called Arsenic Icing, Sentiment as Threat. First, a confession. I'm not so genius as to have come up with a term as brilliant as arsenic icing. Like any good writer, I stole it from a better writer. It was a description employed by Mary Robinson in describing, in a nutshell, a female character who is both charming and alluring, but whom the narrator notes is like arsenic icing. She's a sort of delicious poison as a person to those who know better than to engage with her intimately. I was likely reading this story two decades ago when studying to become a fiction writer when the female narrators I put forth in my short stories were markedly unlikable, so much so that my workshop peers, when forced to say something positive about my work, might say, I like that I didn't like the narrator, always sounding unconvinced. (laughs) And it was women who said that, right? Um, This may be why I deserted fiction. No one really seemed to mind if the speaker of my poems weighed in with their dismal observations as long as the craft was there. And of course, poets aren't out to sell their wares. Male and female poets alike present speakers frustrated, menaced and menacing, impotent in the face of power. Once an agent asked to see my collection of short stories, he wrote back stating that it was too depressing to sell. By the time this phrase resurfaced in my mind some years later, while overhearing a fierce discussion between women on sentimentality in women's work, I'd begun to consider a tone that seemed peculiar to female poets and quite a few queer male writers. Richard Sykin comes to mind as someone who should probably be sitting on this panel right now. An irony that works with a double-edged blade, what happens when women play nice as a means to gain entry into another's mind and heart, all while knowing they move with stealth, with the covert meanness of someone out to settle a score. Maybe I picked up on this because I was raised in one of those mean suburbs in the 80s, where being genuine might result in your destruction, where your looks, if you had any, were as valuable as artillery. During a time, which I hope is over now, in which the ability to seduce meant you might have the chance to turn the tables, much like Anne Boleyn and Wyatt's They Flee From Me That Sometimes Did Seek. Find your own way. And now I see the the problem with the scenario, that there are two sides. What I would have given back then to know that there were more than two sides. There are a ton of women who truck in this brand of irony, and it might get old if it were not employed so deftly and with such acerbic humor. The first poet to come to mind is obvious, Sylvia Plath. You can take any number of her later poems and find them packed with backhanded platitudes. Every woman adores a fascist. Anne Sexton also has her share, and you can see contemporaries like Elena Kalidiak Davis and Carrie St. George Colmer doling out similarly smarting rejoinders. I identify this rhetorical move as tonal, coupled with a willingness on the speaker's behalf to appear pathetic and downtrodden, only to sit right back up in her coffin to spit at the supposed beloved. But I also see the stance as a function of the roles women are expected to play as sweethearts, caretakers, mothers, lovers, nurturers of all the people who do not nurture them back. Being nice as an act, as an endeavor, can be a frustrating experience. On the other hand, being expected to be nice is simply infuriating. 
And it is this expectation that verily contorts the female psyche, compresses her honesty and intelligence by expecting her to assume a form she may regard as superfluous and inane. These are my opinions, right? Not the whole panel. Um, it is stating the obvious. Is it stating the obvious to observe that acting nice requires women to downplay their intelligence? Then again, enacting this kind of performance in a hyperbolic near burlesque manner leads to all manner of revelations, fresh turns, outrageous confrontations, and arrives at the true source of frustration and outrage that is not, when you come right down to it, very ironic at all. A shrink I saw recently noted that depression comes from anger. I wondered why it took me 47 years to figure that out. Even though I'm now a professor and nearing the age of invisibility, I frequently find my speaker's positioned as I once was, a lowly office worker who was forced to endure sexual harassment from her boss because she was a she and a lowly office worker. Occupying that station of vulnerability is an experience I'll never be able to forget because one can never truly vacate it. As Joyce Carol Oates states in her essay, After Amnesia, about her visit to a prison in Newark, New Jersey. It's a really amazing essay. You should check it out. I also think that this mode of presenting oneself as mannered and obsequious, of showing one's belly, does something else. There's strength and vulnerability, sure, but the pathos inherent in one who willingly plays the victim, admits the faults. And here the fault is simply feeling sentiment toward a beloved who may regard himself as a superior, has a vantage point of comedic strength. How many people feel like they are on the side of Plast Daddy? Very few, I would argue. In short, this stance commands empathy from the reader, often because the manner of address is convincingly intimate and seemingly sincere. When you come right down to it, these poetic confrontations are always power plays. Um, let's see. Um, I've long considered my work rife with these examples of this irony. Um, for this talk, I felt compelled to choose uh, examples, poems that served from an onslaught of self-pity and delirious sentimentality. Um, naturally, these poems regard the topic of romantic love and all of its inherent frustrations. Imagine attempting to love someone who has not actively, imaginatively attempted to understand your intelligence. Imagine finding yourself in a relationship with someone you'll finally come to realize regards women as inferior. Imagine being asked by a complete stranger when told you write poetry if you write angry woman poems. Imagine realizing that you are a cliché, that you're very polite, your hope of being understood is in itself a cliché. Worse, imagine reading the garish newspaper headline, More Body Parts of Woman in Trash, and laughing because it's not you, and then thinking that would make a great poem title. Um, it's in that space of macabre cynicism and the objectification of oneself that one finds the fuel for the particular violence that is arsenic icing. It is a mode and is also entirely a reaction, mind you, that arises in a person, in this case a woman, who, once vulnerable, comes to feel contorted by expectations to be nice. Finally, I would say that this mode, that bright smile turned malicious, speaks to us of intelligence and survival, of perseverance, of a refusal to be entombed by society's expectations for women to engage in meaningless displays of their supposed mediocrity, by the expectation that they have faced themselves. Because when a woman speaks directly, she is regarded as angry or even bitter, and finally, perhaps deliberately, misunderstood. As the Brazilian poet, Adelia Prado states in her poem, with poetic license, pain is not bitterness. Pain is not bitterness. And um, what we're going to do today is we're each going to read a poem, and then we're going to talk about these poems. Okay, so I'll have Brenda Shaughnessy here. Her last book is So Much Synth. 
She's a professor um, at um, you're, you're at Rutgers, yeah, in Newark, right? Um, which is a really amazing new program where they give financial aid to like everybody. Yeah, um, V Francis, who just won so deservedly the Kingsley Tufts Award. Um, <laughs> Erin um, Ballou, who teaches at Florida State University, has been organizing a lot of protests. But she's not just an activist. She's one of the most amazing poets I know. And Jennifer Knox, who's one of the most humorous poets I know. And um, so, um, welcome. And um, I guess um, I'll start by reading my poem, okay? And then we can each, we'll each read our poem. Um, thoughts on Wisteria. You were my Maud gun when black ink won, ran down my page like a throat slashed, attack. You were my bassinet when the bow swung down, came our rockabye baby, and all those blue-reds swum their orb lights against fences as cops' cars pulled their immediacy alongside my house. When you were the fence the drunk driver smashed into in that ice age, knocked at an angle that cracked the frozen plastic of PVC fencing jaggedly, still in half, it was your winter. Once you were nearly mine, bar lights dimmed, but the attack mode of attack I always relied on dumb. Another drink, this time a mojito. You sniffed its sugars, downed it. I'm looking for the next page. There we are. Then turned to grind the hip of the girl the room liked least. I'm still shoveling snow. I stubbed my toe. I fell down some stairs. One might have thought I was no one, no matter the nightgown. I was never meant to be your girl. The snow plows are out. They're coming for me. And how my envy grows like a tree. Summer me. The wisteria begins as a vine, becomes a tree, though needs more years than our species has for it to give us notice of its blossoms, allow our noses to ride its fine fragrance, as delinquent bees do now, hovering on my neighbor's heavily piling of growth, a vine that centuries into a tree. It is terrible, sweet. Who decides that which is flower, that which is weed? I'm begging its trespass into my yard, ply its errant length along my fence, try tying it to me. Yet long ago the stink of the polluted sea found its own accommodation, long moved its lank figure within our orbit, as smoke from my cigarette crawled and whisked through our final barroom brawl. Can I not be anything but maudlin? Snow's never over, nor are blossoms gone. Glasses forever itch in cupboards to be filled with wine, as mouths in dark plot to be kissed. Recall how you once suggested I sit by the sea to relax? I failed to admit the beach here is littered with syringes. This is my goodbye. I wish I lived in a little house by the sea, but I do. And um, welcome, Aaron Ballou. Are we supposed to say something about the poem? We were going to do that after. Oh, okay. Um, hi, thanks for being here. Oh, wow, I can't see without my glasses. Um, this, uh, I, I suppose the only thing you need to know about this poem is that it's a response to uh, Seamus Heaney's poem, Digging, which I'm sure many of you know. This is called, um, the title reads into the poem, and it's called, I grow no potatoes to write about, sir, nor bogs, nor fathers, nor special water that was my place alone to make me hard and wise. 
I did not sow nor bury nor even try to fudge my nothings in such dirt with much befangled peaty spade. My wars were far away and fought by men I fear I do not know. Hi-ho, and hence to lady work I went, ascent, ago, long scrubbing at my bits to strip them extra minty meadow clean, and only then convened the little lady's manners class. Of Sundays played me wormy rose, decaying that corsage of girls pinned to spindly ballroom chairs for lessons at our fancy luncheonette. Sir, we were a pastel herd. When handing us the rulers, be best assured we clenched them tense between our knees. You mind your cues and peas, sir. We snapped our thighs right shut, sir. A hairy practice to quick the lady trap. But oh, it made a vestal woe to pay when rulers dropped to those who gived a skinful inch. And so from there my lady life increased, soft-balled, soft-voiced, with little tools to fit my box. Do not tell, sir, for we are friends, sir. Is that a yes? Then I will confess of nights when tides are slapping me about, moon-doodled as I am, and that betimes I creep into your plot and choose your best and biggest digger. Secret-like, I press the shaft inside my knee. I strain until the blisters come. Freely, sir, without a word, I tamp, I work, I score your squelchy turf. I have a time machine. But unfortunately, it can only travel into the future at a rate of one second per second which seems slow to the physicists and to the grant committees and even to me. But I managed to get there time after time to the next moment and to the next. Thing is, I can't turn it off. I keep zipping ahead. Well, not zipping. And if I try to get out of this time machine, open the latch, I'll fall into space, unconscious, then desiccated. And I'm pretty sure I'm afraid of that. So I stay inside. There's a window, though. It shows the past. It's like a television or a fish tank, but it's never live. It's always over. The fish swim in backward circles. Sometimes it's like a rearview mirror, another chance to see what I'm leaving behind. And sometimes like blackout, all that time wasted sleeping. Myself, age eight, whole head burnt with embarrassment at having lost a library book. Myself, lurking in a candled corner, expecting to be found charming. Me, holding a rose, though I want to put it down so I can smoke. Me, exploding at my mother, who explodes at me because the explosion of some dark star all the way back struck hard at mother's mother's mother. I turn away from the window, anticipating a blow. I thought I'd find myself an old woman by now, traveling so light in time. But I haven't gotten far at all. Strange not to be able to pick up the pace as I'd like. The past is so horribly fast. (laughs) 
Um, this poem opens with an epigraph. She's not maternal, she's dangerous, Jamal May. Chimera, I have no charms. Admittedly, no gold comb can move through this mane. My skin is not translucent. Mine is a tale to fear, I know. And though a mother may destroy, she too sees fit to create beauty that would eventually grow into forms I would swallow if I gave in to my hungers. Nothing will come of this womb. But up from my wounds, from this goat's body, up from my wood smoke lungs, from the milk of me, comes a song, a melody to open yours, then lick them clean. A fairy tale. When my father was nine years old, his mother said, Tommy, I'm taking you to the circus for your birthday. Just you and me, and I'll buy you anything you want. The middle child of six, my father thought this was the most incredible, wonderful thing that had ever happened to him, like something out of a fairy tale. They got in the car, but instead of driving him to the circus, his mother pulled up in front of the hospital and told him to go inside and ask for Dr. So-and-so. After that, they'd go to the circus. So he went inside and asked for Dr. So-and-so. A nurse told him to follow her into a room where she closed the door and gave him a shot. My father fell asleep and some hours later woke up crying in agony with his tonsils gone. A different nurse got him dressed and sent him outside where his mother was waiting in the car with the engine running. He couldn't speak on the way home to ask her, what about the circus? Days later, when he could, he didn't. They never mentioned it again. 58 years later, he tells this story to his wife. His only explanation when she asked him, what are you doing home from church so early? He'd walked out in the middle of a mighty fortress is our God, never to return. So, hmm, this work, okay. So um, basically we each prepared statements about our poems, which we can sort of, we can either, I think we should maybe talk about why we chose the poems we chose. For this, do you want to start off, Brenda? Or do you want me to pass the mic to Aaron? I'll pass the mic. Okay. Yeah. To where? Do you want to start, start off? Oh, um, sure. Um, uh, as I told you, that uh, poem, I Grow No Potatoes to Write About, Sir, um, was a response that I discovered as I was writing it to um, Seamus Heaney's poem, Digging. Um, I'm a big fan of Seamus's poems, so it's no, it's no uh, snap on him. Um, but one of the things I think uh, perhaps a number of women writers have felt over the years is the sense that um, s the subject matter in women's poems is often held up for a certain kind of critical disdain. Um, 
and I thought, and one of the things that, one of the sticks that uh, women poets have been hit with um, over the years critically is the idea of the sort of um, the, the bad daddy poem, right? Um, and I was sort of curious about this idea because one of the things that I had observed in my own, you know, uh, experience in the writing world and, and reading poetry over time is that women didn't have the monopoly on daddy poems. Um, and and there there is this kind of... Um, so one of the things a poem is trying to critique, I didn't really realize the strategy I was using until Kate suggested this idea, and I didn't realize that that whole idea of the sir, right, and the sort of power dynamic that my speaker is acknowledging um, in a sort of sneaky way toward the end when she's squelching through his turf, um, is sort of this idea, and I've, I've made this joke before, but um, this kind of fascination in certain straight white male poetry with the father, you know, and the, oh, daddy, and oh, father, and the potatoes, and the dirt, and the bogs, and, you know, daddy, I love to dig, right? Um, and so I was, I was, you know, that's always kind of just been a burr under my saddle, was this idea that, you know, somehow women have a monopoly on this sort of fetishizing of the father. Um, and so the strat, and I didn't really discover the strategy I'd used until Kate came up with this idea how you can you can use this power dynamic to try to flip it around in the poem. I'm sure I'm obviously not the first person to do that, um, but that's really where the poem came from. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything. Oh, and that image of the rulers. It, I, I'd always carried this image around. I don't know if any of you ever had to do this, but did anybody here ever have to go to ladies' classes? Yeah. Oh, you went to ladies' class. I went to Lady class. See how well we turned out. Um, so when I was when I was a, a, about kindergarten age, I was taken every Saturday. I actually kind of enjoyed it, but because you got a new dress out of the deal every time. But um, but we would be taken to this luncheonette back when they had the sort of like tea, I don't know, shops and and nicer department stores. And the image of the ruler was the thing that I remember very vividly from childhood, which was, you know, when you're that little, your feet don't touch the floor yet. And they would put a ruler between our legs um, because the lady had to keep her legs clamped together under, like, even if you fell out of an airplane or something like you, (laughs) your legs must be clamped together at all times. And I just remember by the end of that lunch, all the girls sitting there just like planking uncontrollably for like an hour because your feet don't touch the ground. So I was, I'd always wanted to find a way to bring that image in because it just hits me as, I mean, I'm not like actually 250 years old. So it's odd to think about um, that kind of training, right? I mean, literal training and that training in relationship to how that voice emerged and why that story kind of emerges in relationship to this conversation with Seamus's poem. So that's all I have to say about it. Well, um, you know, I grew up in Washington, D.C., so it's strange to be here. I haven't been here for a really long time except for the march. And um, and, I, and I was thinking, you know, I keep going back to my own sort of childhood and how I grew up as like a girl um, in the suburbs. And my father was an intelligence analyst for CIA, so we could never talk about his job. And my mother was an editor. And I was like, that's a really weird marriage you know, of, of, of ways of thinking and not disclosing things ever or removing things repeatedly. And so I was in a situation, I'm an only child, I love to talk about all the things nobody wants to talk about. And, um, and, they, and I was always accused of being sort of too much or too aggressive or um, 
too sensitive. I think a lot of us probably get this, you know? And it was just the sense of kind of being monstrous when I grew up that I think sort of emerged in my poetry and also being someone who wants to, like, say a lot. Like, a lot, lot, you know, and say all the things that shouldn't be said. And I think that the poem I chose is sort of like, um, you know, it's so, like, such a, I feel like the speaker of it is just this sort of, like, mess that's at the, sort of like, and I, I, drew, I, drew, I, I drew it on this thing where someone on my street did, actually, I wanted to get PVC fencing into a poem really badly. But um, this person, the idea that sort of, like, the male obsession is totally honored. Like, you know, um, like, Yeats, was, he was, this whole thing that he had with Maud Gunn, it's really offensive. Like, when he's like, in his poem, he wishes his beloved were dead. Have you ever read that poem? It's like, he, he was just, she were dead so he could, like, better love her. Right, and um, and and you're just like that's really not cool. Um, and then you're like, well, hey, who doesn't wish women were dead? They die all. We kill them all the time. Um, so you know, that's that's where my mind my mind spends a lot of time around that stuff. Um, so yeah. Um, so I wanted also in that poem, you know, that that the the speaker's like so um, pathetic in so many ways, right? Um, and failed. But also, um, you know, it's, 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 this whole, it's this whole thing of being misunderstood. Also realizes, you know, when you think, you think, oh, it would be so great to, like, someday I'll have this great house. And I was really, like, um, the, the degree of, like, the person who I was writing about was a, was a nature poet, right? And this was, the, this was sort of um, very male. And I was thinking, okay, this person's actually, like, you know, you should go, like, sit by the beach, right? And relax, and it was like there was such a separation between um, his reality and mine because literally, like, you don't want to go to the beach in Staten Island. Like, my students would be like, don't go there because someone will, like, beat you up. And so that was like, that was sort of what I was working on there. Um, so sort of pathos and then also the um, with the dose of, of reality. I don't know how to tie that up. I'm just going to pass this on to. Yeah. Okay. I, I love listening. I'm, I don't even want to take this mic, but... I, I just could, I could listen to more and more of that. And um, Aaron, I, I can't get over it. You just like pulled that accent out just so perfectly, I, so, so well. Um, so I'm very struck by the idea that um, almost anybody, uh, almost anybody's version of anything uh, is preferable than a woman's version. Um, and the time machine has this sort of faux science you know, like, a, you know, there's this pretend uh, officialness to the, to the time machine, which is just your body. You know, we all have a time machine. That's sort of the joke of the title. I have a time machine, um, as do we all. Um, and this, like, sort of created idea that there's just sort of this uh, um, Star Trek-ish, science fiction-ish um, sort of version of actually having real feelings and real memories. Like it needs to have this kind of other, um, this sort of a metal box around it somehow to sort of make it, um, to make it official. I'm really interested in the idea that, um, that our, our memories are us, they're our stories, they are, and we may have the only version of them, we may have unreliable versions of them. Um, but they're not just nostalgia, right? It's not just, oh, back when I was a kid and I felt this way, or, oh, remember those old times. It's not really just the sweetness. It's not just sort of uh, comforting that memories are um, their weapons. Um, sometimes we're, they, we use them against ourselves. Sometimes if we sort of think about um, 
our memories as not something that's empowering or something that is sort of the story of us and in that empowering. Um, it, I don't know if anyone has ever had the experience of just being suddenly being frozen by a memory. Suddenly just being, whether it's some sensory uh, stimulus that's just brought you there or somehow, you know, the, 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 uh, the classic sort of smell that makes it right, that jogs an old buried memory and you realize, and you're either you're frozen, or you sort of go out of body, these kinds of experiences. You feel like we're out of control. Um, but it's amazing to me how powerful it is and how, even if we have no control over it, like trying to find a memory is like trying to dig in a huge purse for something and you're like, I'm looking for my phone, but all I can find are like gum wrappers and you, know, you can't find the memory you want. You don't really have control. You don't have access over it. But I do know that we, ha we must use our memories somehow. Um, that the stories we tell ourselves about what really happened to us, whatever they were, I mean, those will be used against us in the form of erasure, um, marginalization, um, if we don't actually take them and make them ours and own them. So this poem has a couple memories. Myself, age eight, whole head burned with embarrassment at having lost a library book. When I first remembered that I'd lost this library book, I was swimming and I was doing my laps. And at, I, I, I go through each lap with my, um, I reimagine that age. So age six, age seven, age eight. I'm on age eight and this memory of losing this library book. Everybody was on my case. The librarian was mad at me. My parents were mad at me. I couldn't find it. It was so stressful. My, I just blushed. I became so completely covered in shame. So shamed that even writing this poem decades later, I felt like I couldn't even, I didn't want, I was like, I can't write that. I can't admit that. I don't want anyone to know. It was so bad. Um, but only because I actually was able to externalize it, look at it a little bit, I could think, it's not that bad. <laughs> really. Um, I, th this poem's true, and normally I write with as much distance as I can get from not only sentimentality, but sentiment. Um, I often write in dramatic monologues and the voices of both men and women, and it has, that distance has enabled me to arrive at a place, a sentiment that is, I, w I wouldn't have been able to go there in my own clothes. So I wanted to write this poem about my father, but I didn't know how to, I didn't know how to take the feelings with me. So the first part of it, I had to strip the story of any, any feelings that were attached to it. And I didn't know what was going to happen when I got there. I said, I'm going to write it, but I know I can't just write this story because that's like having sex with a, with a map. If you already know what you're going to do, why do it? So I knew that there had to be discovery in it, and that's where the feeling was going to be in that act of discovery. Um, and I had to start with this very emotionally loaded story for me. Um, that makes my whole family cry and cheer, and they just love it. Uh, uh, Oscar Wilde said that a sentimentalist is someone who wants the emotion without earning it. And 
just taking this story with me and not allowing myself to feel anything until the turn, I think is the earning to, to wait and to see what happens when you get there. So I'm, I'm going to read some very brief notes I prepared, and then I want to comment on something Aaron said, and then a couple of other comments. Um, so I chose the poem Chimera. Um, I often work with fairy tales and Greek and Roman mythology, and I want to be very specific there. Uh, as with so many American, those inside of the American education system, these are the stories and myths that I know best. Um, They're the ones we're spoon-fed. I find sentiment inherent in such tales, and more so in each retelling. So in this piece, um, I bend to the common assumption of beauty with a capital B. And by doing so, I participate in my own erasure, so that's how it begins. Um... One second here. The lovely thing about laptops is if you accidentally touch one of the new ones, it goes someplace completely where you didn't want it to go. So, but since the poem is right here, <laughs> um, so that, that uh, very first line, um, I have no charms. That's, that really is part of the key to this piece. Um, Okay. So in this piece, again, I've been to the common assumptions of beauty with a capital B, thus participating in my own erasure. I have no charms. However, it's from this wounding that the possibility of healing for others rests. The question becomes an accusation, a quiet one. By the end of the poem, I say, my wounding provides your healing. But what about my own healing? It's not that something is broken, though the poem may be read that way by those trapped in conventional and received notions around both gender and race. Aren't all round black women, without the currency of the interlocking standards of Western beauty, mothers? Right? And I'm talking about maternalism. I'm not a mother. And if they aren't mothers and lack beauty, what then is their currency? Where are their charms? So if, if for the slave, it was her labor. For myself, it is this labor of love. Only through poetry am I seen on my own terms. So I'm often asked to participate in my own erasure. It's a daily thing. To note how beautiful the other. To admit how maternal I am. Um, At 53, I have no children, so that's a choice. But many keep insisting upon my maternalism. And when I say many, let me say all, because men and women of all backgrounds eat from the same aesthetic plate, which is to say my invisibility begins at birth. And when I am seen, it's in fragments or pieces. A white female equivalent might be the broken statuary praised in museums. How lovely the woman with no head. So here, the creature is made up of other creatures. I posit myself as a chimera. And the goat, of course, indicates the tragedy of it. Despite this, I create. I go on. Less irony than inexplicability. And of course, I'm being facetious because I damn well know my value and my worth. It is in this keening, however, that I reach others. 
If I bend to the sentimental nonsense that insists upon my supposed maternalism, my only value, or maternalism of women at large as being their only value, it's only in the poem to secure an aperture through which I might posit my own positions, through which I can penetrate. This is my attempt to get through to those who won't see me any other way. So the poem rises from a conversation. I'd done a poetry reading, and there was someone talking to me afterwards who kept saying, you're just so much like Lucille Clifton. You're so maternal. I'm nothing like Lucille Clifton. Um, I'm brown. I'm round, and that's about where it is. And I'm impacted by Lucille Clifton. I adore Lucille Clifton, you know, but... I'm vivy, right? And so I said, I have no children. She had several. Um, and I don't really have maternal bone. My mother didn't have the maternal bone. And um, But no, 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 I, I get it. You're dangerous and, and women are, you know, mothers can be dangerous and not. And finally, the um, um, poet Jamal May went up to the other poet who was accusing me of all of this maternalism. And note I said accusing. Um and he, he just got close to him and he said, man, she's not maternal. Meaning she's not maternal in the way you're thinking of it. And he said, she's dangerous. And I liked that. I said, Jamal, if I ever write a poem, I'm going to put that in there somewhere, right? <laughs> and I wanted him to see me as dangerous, meaning outside of his ideas around this sentimental idea of the mother. And I was too... Uh, Kate's credit, I was surprised to be asked on the panel because black women are, are put in a different position with sentimentality. We're only given two boxes. We can be a mother or we can be a hoe. And if we're a good hoe, we can get married. So there, there's, there's our positioning, and it's distressing. Where's the sentiment in that? And the sentiment falls in, in the maternalism and that idea. So that's what I was writing about and to, to address Aaron. Um, it's interesting what you're saying, and this is where we parse race inside of poetics, because the idea of, of that bad father and that being put on mothers. In African-American poetry, and through my work as an editor, thousands of African poems from the African diaspora across my desk, half of it is around the father, right? And that father being written by, other, by men, men on the father. So I'm coming at it from a different angle, and, and I think that different angle supports what you're saying. It's not just women and daddy. Okay. So I just um, want to put a few things on the table really quickly. I'm thinking about the body being a time machine, and women's in particular being a particular kind of time machine, in the way that um, that what our body produces or whatever, it's, you know, it's great when it's children, if it's menstrual blood that needs to be put in a special container and sealed off with, you know, um, I especially think when I, was in, when I lived in Scotland, they would have these like um, hazard signs sort of on um, places where you're supposed to put your sanitary napkins or whatever, you know. So that sort of, you know, being, that being this thing that's value, but it's also completely disgusting because it's powerful. Then I also think about, you know, we're talking about fairy tales and about, um, like the blue, like I think of the Bluebeard, Bluebeard's um, that fairy tale where she it's always if a woman is curious then she gets hers. That's and that's 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 the lesson. And um, and then the other thing is a conversation I had with my husband about having cramps, and I and he said um, he said I don't think a uterus has muscles. And I was like, 
Yeah, and I was like, that's the level of like of like misunderstanding about the female body, right? Uh-huh. And because the uterus is a muscle, right? So, um, so I just wanted to. Just, those were the three things I was thinking about. I just wanted to throw that out there. <laughs> was that just too too much of a non sequitur? Um, so, but yeah, I mean, help me. Okay, I am totally I'm totally blown away um, by. The way that um, we keep—I mean, how many different ways are there to be reduced to your body? You know, how how, how many? Like, there's just so many. My head is reeling. Like, I've been feeling since the inauguration. Like, how many different ways do, are, are they coming up with to fuck us? You know, like how many? It was like—it's amazing how many different ways they were coming up with. It's like genius number of ways. Um, and my head is really spinning right now. Um, this, this this question of mistaken identity that Vivi brings up, and this question of sort of needing to put people in categories, um, I when and by which tools and by and, and and through what energy can we break that? Can we? Can, when when do we get to finally say things overlap? We intersect. We are many, neither, and both. So many things. How, when do we get to start doing that? When does that? When do we get to say no to checking boxes? When do we get to say to somebody, I am not, you know, I'm I'm not maternal. I'm dangerous. And also, what if I am maternal? Am I also not dangerous? I mean, when can we start? Like by by which is it through poems? Is it through conversations? Is it from confrontations? When do we finally get to say we're a we're many, many, many things. You can't, we can't be reduced. When do we get to do that? I think we're really lucky that we... I know. I know. <laughs> I, uh, I think we're really lucky that we could do that in poems. We don't have... It's like animated. It's instantaneous. We set something up for a second and we can shift. We could come from any direction in it. It's very elastic. Um, if I could... You know, I'm, I feel very lucky to be a poet right now. I think our medium is terrific for saying we don't need those constructs anymore. We can do what we can come from any direction we want. Yeah. Um, addressing that question, I, I utterly agree. I mean, I, I think this is one of those moments in poetry where that is exactly what we're doing. We're making our choices and pushing and pushing back. But I'd like to say, too, that we can do this in our lives. I mean, we can do this in the everyday life. The thing is, are you willing to take the consequences? You accept the consequences of it, right? I can say, um, within my own cultural milieu, I can say, okay, I'm not maternal, and then I can remain unmarried, right? That's the consequence. I, I can say, I'm not going to accept this box, and... But there, again, there are consequences. And the question isn't, when do we get to do it? We can do it right now. It's just a matter of how many of us are willing to accept the consequences and, and with each other as women, because we're complicit in our own erasure so much. And when we find women that are willing to move outside of those boxes, we want them back into the convention box, you know. That, that actually makes me think about when Kate and I were first having the discussion that resulted in um, Vita's beginnings. One of the reasons that we, and we were both in our, how old, I don't know, 10 years, we were in our 40s. Um, and, it, and I remember having a very explicit conversation with you about whether or not we could afford to step outside of 
the particular boxes that we had been sort of put in um, as women poets who had, had actually been pitted against each other yes. quite frequently. Yes. Um, and we and I remember I remember we both uh, came to the you know we we realized we could afford to do Vita because we had tenure, mm. right? And we we made a very conscious decision about like we could. Well, we were like, maybe we'll get 500 likes on Facebook, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, but but I, me- I remember making that really conscious decision. There have been a couple times in my life where I had to really make a conscious decision and recognize the box that I had. That you were safe. Yeah, I, was, I had stayed. I was definitely staying in my lane. Um, one of the people, and th- this is a great teacher to have her point her finger at you, um, was Adrienne Rich. Who looked at my first book, and I, you know, I met her and uh, had a correspondence with her, and she was someone I admired deeply. And I sent her my first book. I was really excited about it, and she was like, "Meh, so you're a good formal writer." And I was like, you know, I was getting a lot of sunshine blown up my ass right at that moment, and so I was sort of like, "Oh, right." But I mean, she made me. She really made me look at that book. She asked me. She asked me questions about who I was in those poems. Right, she's the only person who did that because she she's not a, she was not a person who was going to just tell you what you wanted to hear, right? Um, and that was a really big moment for me where I had to make some big decisions about. Um, I, I became conscious of the fact that I was not I was not writing I was writing it makes me think of Claire V. Watkins, you know, now famous essay that she wrote about writing for her teachers, mm-hmm. um, and that and that's that's an interesting moment I think for a lot of women writers having to figure out um, how you step out of your safety box and I think Vivi's you know as long as you're willing to pay the consequences right but I still see my students my women students struggling with this all the time in the MFA and PhD where they they are very I don't mean to be depressing but it doesn't feel like it's changed that much in certain ways, because I still see so much fear in that la- in that education landscape about what happens if I open my mouth or what happens if I piss off this particular oh, professor. See. Yeah, I think oh. I think that fear is that fe- that fear they're experiencing and they're voicing is knowledge, and we didn't have that knowledge. That was all behind a curtain when I was coming up, and the fact that younger people know that this is this is the reality of the landscape mm-hmm. and they know to be frightened of it i think is progress oh good yeah your fear is progress i'm making t-shirts <laughs> i like your that your fear is progress i like that you're so optimistic i mean i think for me I, I kind of had a collision with being female because i had a baby on my own and i did it without having sex with anybody i used i used donor sperm and that to me was like just hilarious you know that, um, and so. But when I had the baby, um, I, I didn't realize I basically. You know how you talk about the woman being the safe maternal woman. Um, I kind of had been like the safe non-maternal woman for myself, and I didn't realize that I had participated. Well, I, I just thought that I, I was. It was totally like a token situation where I'd had a really good experience, and then, and then I had a baby, and then my academic colleagues, many of whom were female, had disdain for me because I'd had a child, and I was like dealing with a stroller. 
And people were like, bless it. Oh, bless you. And I was just like, what the fuck is going on here? And I was like so solidly in a female body in that moment. And that's when I realized I had to look outside myself and I had to look at other women. I had to look at the women who, who, here to, who had prior had intimidated me or made me uncomfortable and communicate with them and really position myself as a woman and not sort of go along with like, okay, I had a similar experience with um, the poet Morris Manning was like, he was like, you remind me of Louise Glick and Ellen Bryant Voigt. And I'm like, those are probably the only two women he ever read, right? <laughs> and I was just like, I am like, if, like, if I'm like Louise Glick, there's a problem. I mean, not, no offense, you know, but, um, but it's like, it was just sort of allowing myself to, to, to speak to what I was observing. And that was when we started to count. I was like, everybody, every woman counts. Every, you know, every, like we all look at these table of contents and see where we are in the mix. And it just seemed to be a really simple way of saying, you know, this is what I see when I look at that table of contents, maybe not what you see. We'll talk a little bit more, and then we should have a Q and A, probably. I'm I'm going to keep pushing it out of the poem and like into the world because I think I think the poems, the poems act as a bridge uh, for that kind of activism, if you will. And um, so, in, in my own experience with the gentleman who kept calling me maternal, I kept pushing back almost an hour. I just kept saying it, and then it, it's telling that it it was a male who uh, who also. You know, a younger male who, from a different vision, different background, who also pushed back. So it's not automatic that a male has to decide, I'm going to agree. So, so the question is one of, of expectations, choice, and agreement. We don't have to agree. When we don't agree, we're going to pay a price for it. But I'd rather disagree and pay that price than agree and keep bending. Right, and so it's a matter of, of quality of life. So for me, the poem is definitely attached to the life, and, and my continuing to to push back and 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 say no. And I love what you just said, Kate, about talking to the the women who make you feel that way, talking to them. And and for the record, I'm not anti-maternal. <laughs> I'm just not maternal for myself. Right. Um, and the, the quote, the, the word maternal is in quotations in the poem because, I mean, maternal as this gentleman thought of it, right? That was not a dangerous maternalism to me. It was to him, but not to me. For me, the real pushback is not agreeing, making choices based upon my own needs and dealing with the consequences. Do you want to open it up, Yeah, should we open this up to Q&A? Could everybody hear that? What does being maternal and dangerous look like to you? I think this question is directed to well, Vivi, right? I think that, well, in, in being African-American, I mean, when have black women not been thought of as maternal? I've been the tit for the world. I don't want to be that anymore. I want the choice to be mine. If I give milk to anything, it'll be to a child I have. No one else, right? And so I, I think there's this idea that black women are supposed to be nurturing. And the second we're not nurturing, suddenly we're evil and angry. Mm -hmm. And and we don't... So what, I can't 
accept that. So what is dangerous? Dangerous for me is making the choice to not nurture in those ways and to refuse to be seen in those ways. And round and brown, as soft as I am, you know, I'm far more lover than mother. So, you know, (laughs) outside of the standards or not, another kind of danger. So I I feel that we are dangerous any time we push back against received ideas that are highly sentimental about what women are or should be. Every woman on here is dangerous. (laughs) I also uh, do not have children and... When I meet certain people, it's almost fun to watch them run down the check boxes. Like they're trying to figure out, all right, what are you? Where are we going to fit you in? And they don't end up with a sense of closure. And I see it in every subsequent interaction I have with people who do not feel a sense of closure with me when they don't have me in the box. Um, they're very uncomfortable. Well, it really resonates for me, and thank you for saying it, because um, I never wanted to be the good little mother, and I love being babies, too. Yeah. I just, I just, this made me think about something that's actually always bothered me. Um, but for the last couple of books, I, I, I actually have a 16 year old son. Um, and Interestingly, there's been this other reaction that I've received, which is people in comments and, you know, God bless the Internet where everybody can tell you what they think of your poems all the time. It's awesome. Um, but I've had people say, you know, Baloo is, is somebody's mother. If you, can t- if you can stomach, you know, can you, like, like this actually, like, commentary uh, on my, me? right, yeah. like, um, you know, um, you know st- stuff about... Um, if you can stomach the portrait of her toddler son or something. And I have, a, I have a poem for my son called The Birthmark, which I think is a very loving but also very realistic poem about the, that sort of early part of infancy and how, you know, it's, it's basically just, you know, puke and excrement. And, you know, it's nicer in the poem. It doesn't sound so great when I say it this way. But I remember, but I rem- I've never heard, you know, I've got a pretty thick skin, but I've never had a comment that just took me right, like took the wind out of me to for somebody I felt like somebody had come up and put their hands on me in some really nasty way because they were reaching toward my kid through my poems. But men nev- that never happens to men. No, no I can't imagine it does. Somebody's father. <laughs> <laughs> do you do you kiss do you kiss your son with that mouth? <laughs> So, yeah, I, I hadn't really thought about it until just then. Go ahead. Um, I, I, I was thinking about how you push against the expectations and then you meet the consequences. We have to push against the consequences, too. I mean, these examples yes, yes. are great examples, and, and we can only push against the consequences together. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, yeah. If you do it by yourself, you just get more consequences. But when we do it on Yeah, when I said fear is progress, I don't want to leave it there. Like, fear is progress, period. Like, it's a comma. And then you keep moving. I utterly agree with you if we're listening to each other. 
that's why I'm happy I'm on the piano. If we're listening to each other. I'll give you an example. Pussy hats. Pink. Not a damn thing on me. It's pink. Right? Do I see any hats that look like me? Almost purple? No. Okay. So it's those tiny things. They seem small. But when I see this proliferation of pink, I can't help it. I get upset because nothing on me is pink. And I spent my entire childhood waiting for the pink to happen. Right? Because pink is the aesthetic standard. That is just an example of not seeing each other, knowing each other. And if we don't see or know each other, we're not hearing each other. So I agree. We do have to do it together. But we also have to listen to each other across a lot of lines where we're not doing that yet. And we have to not cry about it. Just do it. Right? Hence, I'm going to begin sewing my little hat tomorrow. I don't know. I love reading poems by men when they write about their bodies and their experience. I feel like that's you know it's, it's very very interesting for me to read read about men and what that experience is. I think that when you see a female body, though, um, I mean it's just empathy, right? Um, if you see sometimes you'll see women in poems and it'll be um, I don't know. I um, mean you know it's either they're um, Objectified, or they're sort of um, sensationalized or sexualized in a way that doesn't feel like it, it, it's it's your body. I don't know. Um, yeah, you know, I I actually think that some of the most important work in, that can be done in poetry right now is to interrogate the construction of masculinity. I think that anything that seeks to explore and explode, you know. Um, preconceptions and, and sort of ways that, that men feel they have to be men or that, that masculinity posits itself as some kind of um, uh, um, fixed identity with certain points that have to be, you know, made and met. I, I think that's one, I, mean, I just, I can't think of anything more important. Um, whether, you know, how to help male writers understand across gender lines women's experience, I don't think that's, I'll, I, I don't know. I don't think it has to be done um, necessarily by men to cross a gender line. What I think needs to happen is to um, is for for men to look at what being a man is and why and how and if it's if it can be changed if it can be different. Um, women, for, for 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 whatever for whatever it's worth, I, I think the most important thing that I've that I've experienced, the thing that's mattered most to me, is to listen to older women to, to hear what they are saying and listen to them and not 
not override them and just listen. I am not listened to often. You know, like when I was younger, I felt like I wasn't listened to because I was younger and I had no authority. Now that I have a little bit of authority, I'm like an old lady who has no opinion. You know, it's sort of a weird, <laughs> it's sort of a weird thing. So I, I, I think it's very, very important to listen to my elders, to listen to women of experience. And the reason why I do this is because I was taught a very beautiful lesson by, um, by an elderly woman when I was just starting my career. And I was doing a reading with the great, the late great Alan Grossman in beautiful church. It was one of my first readings that I'd ever done. My first book was just out. And I was terrified because I totally knew that nobody was there for me and everyone was there for Alan Grossman and he was amazing. Also, it was a church and my work was filthy. And I was pretty convinced that someone was going to tell me that I had disgraced God's house or something. I was just, I was just petrified. And so I did my reading and it was crappy. I did a crappy, crummy reading because I was so full of shame and weirdness. I couldn't get over myself. And um, this elderly woman comes up to me and I think, here she comes. She's going to tell me about how I desecrated God's house. And, you know, and she said, can I, can I give you some advice? And I said, okay. And she said, I think it's time you grew out of your little girl's voice and into your woman's voice. And I, it just changed my life like that. I didn't know this person. I never saw her again. Um, she changed everything changed when she said that. And I listened to her and I'll, I will never, I can't unlearn that lesson. So I, I give it to you too. I, uh, I think the idea of a man writing in a man's, his own voice, I think it's that in itself is very limiting. Uh, that we're, again, lucky as poets because we can take on any voice we want. We can be anybody we want, even if the voice that we find eradicates all our perceptions of who we think we are and what we think we know. Um, it's, it's elastic. And if we're only looking at things through our own voice and our, what we think of as our brains, then we're kind of a brand. We're just selling us as a brand, ourselves. So I think we can, we can fly anywhere. If you really want to pay attention, you want to risk having your whole ego destroyed, which... I, I want to do that. You know, I want to have it obliterated. I'm just thinking about um, Jeffrey McDaniel, who I think is someone who he has this poem called like "The Jerk," and it's all this like it's this hilarious poem where it's just like this declaration of like you know, like park your your you know he just says all these outrageous things. He's this horribly and obviously destructive person, and I um, mean he do, he does this. He sort of he does these sort of like. Um, these satires of like really awful men and I think that's like that seems to me one very um, humorous way mm -hmm. to tackle that I just would recommend reading him um, well, I think that those bin that binary is already it's getting a lot of pressure put on it more and more and more, and I'm glad. And some of that's coming from just, we're in this era of self-identity, right? So we can identify the way we choose. Others don't tell us who we are. We say who we are. All those little check boxes don't make sense anymore, right? And I think the transgender com community is really putting pressure on that opening 
ways that we look at heteronormativity and all these other things, opening all this stuff up, how we look at gender. Um, so again, I think this is another place where poetry is in this transitional space where we can really, now is the time to think about those things. But I would say think about it in answer, in answer to your question, coming from you first, right? So why do you want to, if you identify as, say, cis male, then why do you want to write about the woman, right? What's your stake in that, right? And to look at the diction and the language, because whenever men tend to write about women, that you know they're the whole, the thing things are thrown into, the jagged object goes into. So how is that woman being written? But really, why are you doing it? I think about that in racial terms too. If we want to write someone across the line or someone we see as other than ourselves, what's our stake in that? Why are we doing that? You know. Are we, in an age where people can speak for themselves, I, I think it's important to stretch ourselves, but it's also important to um, admit our stake in it. So, How much more time do we have? We've got about five more minutes. Are there any more questions? Can I go over? No, no, you're no, great. We have, um, we have basically seven more minutes. If you guys want to ask us questions. If not, we can just run out of here. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, girl, I can talk about that endlessly. Erin yeah, and I are going we'll, to we'll fight over the microphone. We'll have a glass of wine and chat about that. But um, just the, it's like, um, it's just the little things, right? Just the little things. Like, I've been at the same place for a long time. I'm a full professor there now. They know that I'm a single mom with a kid, and they know that this is when I drop my kid off at school, and this is when I pick my kid up. From school because you know your kid isn't actually supposed to walk on an interstate to get home from school um, it's frowned on apparently and they pull they, oh, you, man I, I, you just, it just had a nerve right it's just like you know working working in academia if you're a parent there's still often I think in many places and I also teach in the deep south so maybe that's not you know the place we think of as the most progressive spot in the world um but I mean, just the just the little uh, the kind of jockeying that you're put through all the time, where where you, that's like your problem, your business. It really isn't supposed to have you know have anything like the, your humanity. This big part of you is not something that gets um, thought about or acknowledged, right? And and so it's just that constant thing where there are meetings that you can't be at because there's just nobody else to p- pick up your kid. And how do we how do we end up being outside of the dynamic of the department so that, like, you can't fully, you know, and I've, I've figured out how to work it over the years, but it, especially when I was an assistant professor, it was a really big thing um, to constantly be in this kind of struggle as a parent because most of the people I was dealing with were men who had wives who were taking care of their kids. And it was it's it's not it wasn't really more complicated than that. But I mean, just from a pro- professional, I'm not telling you, but I'm sure other people have very similar stories here. But again, I'm not sure. You know, one thing that actually cheered me though 
that's been going on recently in uh, the meetings in my department. And I actually love a lot of people in my department. It's not a terrible department or anything. But I've noticed that the women in my department have started doing that that amplifying thing. Oh, I love that. Um, and everybody just has started naturally doing it. And it's been one of the most, if we're talking practical tips, right? Um, it's been one of the most effective things I've seen. Is that, And it was beautiful to watch. None of us planned this ahead of time. We just started amplifying each other and, re- and repeating and repeating and repeating what the person said until the fathead chair finally, like, acknowledge that somebody had spoken, right? Just that amplification as a strategy where women are sort of coming together to hold each other up in those kinds of environments, it seems like a small thing, but I've seen it do an enormous amount of good. I like so. the way Aaron's talking about amplifying. Mm-hmm. See, I just amplified her. Oh, thank yeah. you. And I, th- I think also, like, um, I know... <laughs> if I'm going to be your straight man, you're going to have to pay me. But... When I a really long time ago, I applied for a fellowship, and I actually like I brought the application with me into the into, into the hospital when I was about to have my baby because I went into early labor, and I was just so used to filling out applications all the time. And then I got the fellowship, and um, and it was a residency, and they were like, um, they were there was a lot of concern about um, my bringing a baby with me, right? A lot of concern, and so and it's interesting because I think I just want to first of all, it's a big problem with a, with what you write about. Writing about having a kid can be seen as something that's just really boring or something, right? Um, so I think we have to write about it, and I think that um, also, like Vivi says, I mean, I just basically took my baby with me everywhere, and sometimes it usually pissed women off more than men. Um, I remember that I had my daughter with me at a reading. I couldn't get childcare for her, and you know what? She can listen to readings, you know. Um, she's around poetry all the time. She's a reader. And I remember the dean really sort of, you know, giving me some snarky look. And it was just like, I just, I, I bring my kid with me. So in terms of like sort of enacting that, I think you have to um, just act like it's natural. You know? In that case, like, just, yeah, just go, go forth with it. So many more than they're used to. You wouldn't see a kid for years here. Yeah, I have a, I have friends who brought their kids, and I just I just don't want. I think I've subjected my child to too many literary events already, <laughs> right? This has been a, something that's been posed to AWP repeatedly over the years, and we could have Christian Teresi come here and explain to you to the point that you'd fall asleep as to why they can't do it. Um, and I'm not going to, I don't even remember what the explanation was. It has something to do with insurance. Yeah? I think there should be more cosplay. <laughs> not nearly enough. That's a great idea. What is cosplay? Are you guys done with this? Are there any more questions? Can you stand up? You cannot hear you. Hello. Yes. No, material. Yeah, yeah. I'm. I'm being very. If you're not hearing me, go back to what I said earlier about hearing each other, 
and yes, thank you so much for amplifying that. I said, I said that um, that I was pushing back against someone else's idea of the maternal. But yes, the the maternal certainly, and in the poem itself, if you read it, it definitely says that to be a mother is a site of danger. Yes. I think that's what mo- most of the, the, the women poets I know, that's exactly what they're doing. When they're doing it at the top of their game, when they're really risking, yeah. Clark? What? Can you wrap it I think it's changing. Mm-hmm. I do. And I think part of that changes exactly this. Um, Kate asked me to be on the panel. And initially I wasn't going to because I'm so used to not having that side of opportunity. I didn't realize how important it was to do it. And then um, uh, she asked me more than once. And <laughs> and and I said yes. And, and, and those kinds of things, those are the change. But... Um, uh, because it's complex, and I think we like things easy and simple and in boxes, and when we have to actually admit that the way things work with women across um, ethnic or cultural lines is different, it, it pushes back against that. But it's all the same thing, which it's not. It's complicated, and we have to be able to accept the nuance and complications and paradoxes of it, accepting... Uh, Accepting it and talking about it, this kind of discourse is what helps. So, I think that's all we have time for, right? Yeah. Thank, Thank you for you coming. Thank you for listening to the AWP podcast series. For other podcasts, please visit our website at www.awpwriter.com.